Welcome to Chew the Fat. In this series, I sit down with high performance guests over their favorite meal, and we unpack lessons in life, in business, and what it takes to be at the top. This is all part of my journey to raise a million dollars by producing a cookbook called Eat With Purpose. Follow along on my Instagram, Frank Grief. I hope you enjoy. David Shane, one of Australia's first tech unicorns, sold your business in the year 2000. We'll get into a bit more detail shortly, but welcome to Chew the Fat. Thank you for having me. And in today's dish, what I've done for you is a crispy skinned barramundi. I know you love your fish with a, one of my specialties is a mashed potato, but hopefully not like you've had before and a lemon, garlic and caper sauce. Looks Dig great. in, take a bite. Looks amazing. Now there's a good story here too, while you have that. On my last week of work at Bathers Pavilion, maybe I shouldn't have named them. <laughs> I, uh, I maybe shouldn't have told you before you say anything, but I, um, I prepared a dish, which was a barramundi, and I undercooked it. And my chef in front of the entire kitchen yells at me, Frank, you useless, see you in, you finish the words. That was one of my last memories after three years of working, so hopefully I've cooked it perfectly. <laughs> I've, I've, I've got it to you, this is unbelievable. Oh. I, really, I really mean it, and I, and I would tell you otherwise. So <laughs> I, I may be your second, yeah. your, your second guest who finishes the whole meal there. So, Dave, where I would love to start for the audience is what was the sale price of Comtech? I know it's going to be crazy. I don't remember exactly, but I think it was about $1.1 billion at the time of sale. In the year 2000? It was in August 2000, I think, yeah. How did that feel? You know, we... Yeah. We, we sold down in the company a couple of times. Macquarie Bank invested in our company. And, uh, and I've got to say, every time you take money off the table, you think like this is like going to be the greatest day of your life. And, and I must be honest, often it's, it was an anticlimax. And you know, obviously having the, the money was amazing. Um, you, know, you start a business, you take all the risk and you have all the challenges. Yeah, you've run your own business and it's never, it's never ever plain sailing. Even when things are going well, there's, there's, you know, there's challenges. And, um, and yeah, so when you get the reward for that hard work and commitment and resilience, you think that's the end game. And, uh, and I'll say, obviously, having that financial security for the rest of my life was unbelievably satisfying and rewarding. It was almost like, a, like I felt, I don't want to say I felt depressed or whatever, but it wasn't like someone who just, yeah, I love watching yeah, Millionaire's Hot Seat. I really <laughs> do. I watch it mainly when you see people yeah, win, and sometimes they're only winning ten dollars or $20,000, and you just see them literally you know, well up, and I'm going to pay off my debt, and I'm going to take my family on a holiday, and that, you know, that really makes me feel good, and you think, you think you're going to feel like that, but... I didn't, and I'm not sure what it felt like for you. And uh, yeah, but as I say, I can't emphasise enough. Financial security is why you take the risk, and uh, and yeah, everything that I'm able to do today is because of of that risk and that payout that I got in 2000. Um, but I'd say there've been happier days in my life. Wow. I think there's, you know, a lot of people hear that. And, and so one of the questions I had prior to selling my business is, um, and hopefully this comes out the right way, I said, you know, I heard those statements and the statements were, 
exactly what you're saying. It's like you sell that business, it's not all about the money, it's about the journey. And yeah. then, you know, me and my brothers used to joke around and say, do you think that's just what rich people tell us because <laughs> they, they don't want us to make it? But I think you're spot on. And I think it's, I, I've heard it time and time again and I, I went through that exact thing. I, I called it something probably a bit too extravagant than I should, but I called it like a purpose realignment because yeah. I don't know about you, but during those early days, that was a big part of the goal. You know, yeah. it's like a big part of the goal was a commercial outcome. And then you get that and you're like, oh, what's next? Yep, absolutely. And you sort of almost sometimes worry. Yeah, money doesn't make you, doesn't make you happy. Mm. It's not... It's, it helps, you know, it, um, it absolutely helps, you know, knowing if you want to send your kid to a private school or if you want to travel overseas and you know you can do those kind of things. That, but there comes a point where you say, you know, you look at your beautiful home that you have over here and like what, how much better can you do than this or how much better can you get than the, you know, the car that you've got? You know, it's like, yeah, and, and it's just, yeah, it becomes... Yeah, I think from my economics days, which was, I wasn't very good at, but I think it was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You mm. know, there's those basic things that everybody wants. Mm. And then there's those, yeah, there's those things that some people do just for the sake of saying, I've got a boat. You know, I've been out on the water once this year, but I can tell everyone I've got a <laughs> yeah. boat. And, uh, well, I've got three holiday houses, mm. even though I've never been to any of them. I can tell people I yeah. have that, or I drive this car because I, yeah, people need to know that I have a... I have a Subaru, by the way, but, <laughs> but, but because I have a, I have a, yeah, I've got a Maserati, I've got some fancy mm. car, just, just, yeah, but does it make you happy? No, it doesn't. And, and, and with like, so following that thread down, did you post sale go through this, this going, okay, well, I don't maybe feel this way, but maybe if I buy X, Y, and Z, I will, did you, or, or were you not really that into material possessions? What was your thing? I, look, I, I think, yeah. You run your own business, and I, I say I surprised myself where I ended up. That mm. never in my wildest dreams did I ever dream that I'd have the financial success and security that I that I had at the time. Um, but yeah, it was really you know I bought a house when Macquarie Bank invested. That was in 1992, so we'd been going for about five years, literally living on sweat sweat equity. And uh, yeah, we took a little bit of money off the table and I bought a house in, in Dover Heights. Yeah, it was a, an old three bedroom brick house. Um, yeah, I, I had been living in a, in a semi um, and uh, we moved to this three bedroom brick house. Yeah, a couple of houses from the cliffs in Dover Heights. Nothing, honestly nothing. But I literally, I remember my brother saying to me, he said, Dave, you made you know, you made for life. I said, yeah, I am. And that's how I felt. And I can honestly say, if that's where I live for the rest of my days, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be, you know, your, your happiness, you know, I've got an amazing house today, mm -hmm. but your level of happiness from that home that I had in Dover Heights to, you know, from where I lived, my level of happiness went from here to here. Mm -hmm. You know, we had this tiny, tiny two-bedroom semi mm. with a, you know, there was a hill's hoist in the back garden that literally, you know, I had two boys at the time. And, you know, if I were to say, this is where I live for the rest of my days, I'll be unbelievably happy, I would be lying. Mm. When I moved to this freestanding house in Dover Heights, my level of happiness went from here to here. Yeah, many years later, we bought a waterfront in Vaucluse and my level of happiness went from here to here. And I really mean, yeah, as I say, I don't want to sound arrogant because 
yeah, at risk of, of, of offending anybody because I am lucky enough that I have got this beautiful home. But yeah, my wife and I were just in Dover Heights um, on the weekend by chance. And we drove past our old house and I always said that, that was our happy home. <laughs> and that's really what's important if you're happy. And uh, yeah, that's my opinion. Awesome. No, I yeah. love it. And let's, we'll, we'll shift gears, uh, make sure everybody doesn't think this is just the um, one hour of Frank asking money questions. <laughs> and so for me, I want to ask you a question. So we talk about happiness and you reflect on your time in Comtech. How many years was it? Uh, 14 years. 14 years. When you think about the time that you were most happy in Comtech, yep. what comes to your mind? I think I was always happy. We had an amazing team, an amazing bunch of people. And, uh, and I love what we did really early on in the piece. Yeah, you know, nobody knew what culture was in my day. Mm. Really, that's the truth. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I saw something the other day that Walmart has now advertising jobs where they say tertiary qualification, not necessary. Mm. Skill-based education is, is as important. You don't know how many people I hired that I'd often see an ad from IBM where they'd say, yeah, we're looking for someone with all these skills, blah, 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 and tertiary qualification required. And I used to say, thank God, because they can't headhunt half the people in our company. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm going to give you two examples. And I wanted to actually post this article on LinkedIn the other day, but I didn't want to offend the people <laughs> whose names I'm going to mention. Um, there was a young guy's name was Scott Petty. Mm. He got made redundant um, from a company called Olivetti, who you probably haven't heard of. Olivetti were um, famous for typewriters. Yeah. You may have to go to, um, <laughs> to, to Wikipedia or somewhere to Google to find out what a typewriter I'm is. I'm sure there's a video on TikTok <laughs> about typewriters. <laughs> but they then moved into the printer market mm. in the very early days. So I'm going back to the late 80s and uh, and also decided they were going to manufacture PCs. And uh, they just couldn't compete in the PC market and decided to get out. So they laid off divisions. They didn't lay off people. They basically said, we're closing down our computer division. Unfortunately for Olivetti, unfortunately for me, Scott happened to work in the computer division and was made redundant. And there was a guy that I worked with, a guy, Chris Martin. He said, Dave, this is an amazing young guy. He said, would I consider meeting him? I said, of course. I met Scott. I said, when can you start? He was 18 years old. Scott worked in the company. He outlasted me. But what does Scott do today? He is the global CTO of Vodafone, wow. based in the UK. There's another guy, um, Gerard Florian, who also joined us. A similar time, uh, probably a little bit later than after Scott. No degree. What's Gerard doing today? He's a CTO of ANZ Bank in Australia. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I always used to say uh, I would never replace you know, Scott or Gerard, and I could give you a whole long list of other people, for someone who had a PhD in networking communications, which was the area that we operated in. Because I didn't know if that PhD had the same attitude that Scott, Gerard, and, as I say, the 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 number of other people that we employed who did not have tertiary qualifications. What I knew was everybody we hired had the attitude and the ability to, yeah, you can, 
you can train for skills, you can't train for attitude. And mm. I just knew that if the shit hit the fan, which it always does in the industry and yeah, in the tech industry, if the shit hits the fan, I knew that I could rely on everyone in our team because they had both the attitude and the ability to solve those problems as and when they occurred. Not because they were, yeah, had computer science or engineering degrees. They had, yeah, they had the attitude and the ability. Now I've got three boys and I would never discourage any of them from getting a university degree. Mm. But yeah, my youngest son is a software developer today and I encouraged him to go and get a job while he was at university. He he's now has his computer science degree and he says, I don't know why I wasted my time getting a degree, <laughs> Dad. And yeah, but he can put on his CV, yeah, Daniel Shane, computer science degree and uh, but He's learned more on the job, working for you know, one of the best software developers that I've ever worked with. And, and you know, I think that's what he's experienced. You know, what you learn on the job is just absolutely invaluable. Amazing, amazing. I, I, I really love that and I really resonate with that. And you talked there about... So, so I'm going to, I'm oh. going to say, sorry, Frank. Sorry, and, no, no, you're okay. So, so you asked me what made me happy. Yes. And, and it was seeing people achieve more than what they ever would have achieved in any other company. One of the other guys, I'm telling you all stories about no, some it. of the great guys that I worked with, but you know, Dave Colvin was another guy who came from Forbes. He was the youngest uh, of five in his family and was the highest earning, highest salary earner in his family. Um, Dave um, came from a competitor of ours. Mm. And I'll never forget the guy who suggested I hire him was a guy, Jeremy Hancock, who worked for our competitor at the time. He said, there's this really good young guy who works in the warehouse, um, but he's extremely t technically uh, uh, proficient. Would I consider meeting him? I said, of course. Dave came to meet me. He had long hair and an earring, and that's why Dynamatic would not allow him to, to get a job in tech support, which I could never understand because in those days, tech support or customer success was a phone based, yeah. yeah, you weren't even, we weren't even doing it over Zoom. Yeah. So nobody even saw what Dave looked like. He's not a bad looking guy anyway. But I gave Dave, uh, I gave Dave a job and honestly one of the best tech guys that I've ever worked with. And, um, and uh, one day Dave came to see me and Dave was white. He was literally the color of your, of your wall. And uh, I said, Dave, what's wrong? He said, I've got to go to the Mars Bar factory in Albury, Wodonga. They've got, a, they've got a tech support problem. I said, come on, Dave, you've never been scared of a tech problem before. I said, uh, he said, no, no, Dave, he said, I'm not worried about the tech problem. I've never been on an aeroplane before. <laughs> and uh, I said, you'll be okay, Dave, which he was. And about 18 months later, Dave came to see me. And he said, Dave, I'm going to ruin your day. And uh, I said, what's up, Dave? He said, I'm leaving. And he did ruin my day for a short, for a short period of time. Because I felt, yeah, I felt the blood drain from my body and I went white. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean you're leaving? He said, no, he's going to live in the UK. He's been offered a job by Merrill Lynch and, uh, and uh, he's going to go there because in those days, and I think it's still applicable today, that Aussies under the age of 27 get a two-year work visa. Mm. And that was probably the biggest, if we, if we ever lost people, it was, it was young guys who wanted to take advantage of, mm. of going to, to work in the UK, you know, on that UK-Australia uh, visa. And I said, Dave, you haven't ruined my day, you've made my day. I said, I'm so proud 
that someone who had never been on an aeroplane before oh. has now learned the skills that's given you the opportunity to go um, to go to the UK. I said, but you make sure that the day you come back, and I said, you will, because I'm going to, send, I'm going to give you a really good lesson. I said, if the English were so clever, they would have kept the convicts there and they would have come here. <laughs> I, said, uh, I said, so you are going to come back. When you do, our office was in Alexandria at the time. In fact, today, our office, which is still called the Comtech Communications Centre in Alexandria, is the headquarters of one of Australia's greatest companies, WiseTech Global, is based in, uh, in, in the offices that we used to, in the, in the same centre that we, we used to be based in. So we're right by the airport, it was Corner Duty and Arredon Street. I said, you don't even go home. You come straight to the office and your job's waiting for you. And 18 months later, Dave came straight from the airport and said, Dave, were you serious? He said, when can you start? <laughs> and Dave outlasted me. I think, I don't know when he left um, Comtech or Dardata as it became known. But those are the things that made me happy. We had an unbelievable team, unbelievable culture. And uh, I loved working with the people that I worked with. And maybe that was the fear of you know, selling the company mm. and then leaving of, you know, how, how can I ever possibly recreate what, what we built together as a team. Wow, that is so cool. And I, I can tell as you talk through that, as tell as you talk through those colleagues, I can see that twinkle in your eye and I can see the, the authenticity there around, you know, they truly made a mark. And, and to your point there, it makes perfect sense how you're feeling as you sold, because yeah, yeah you've, you've built this, this army of amazing people that you want to be surrounded by and yeah, it meant soon you wouldn't be. So I want to go further into the, the point around attitude. Right. So, so to people listening that might be, you know, small, medium, small, medium or large business and they're like, okay, look, I've been always looking at resumes and always taking the view that, um, you know, university is really important. But how could you, like, what would your advice to them be around how do you look for attitude in those first, you know, one hour um, interview with a person? So I'm here today, Frank, because I met you and I thought, well, this is a guy that I, want to, that I want to get to know. You know, I met 20 people at the lunch or the session that day and uh, I think sometimes attitude is infectious and it's just, uh, you know, and, uh, and I think it's probably the, you know, the only skill I, well, I'll say I'm a pretty good sales guy, which was what I, you know, I think when you're building a business, you, you have to be a, a really good salesperson. You know, you're selling to customers, you're selling to business partners and you're selling to, you know, you're trying to convince someone why they should leave domain and come and join this tiny little startup that's, you know, two men and a dog and, uh, and uh, you know, give up a secure salary for this risky venture and, you know, get, I think, you know, sometimes, you know, you've got to go in your gut and no one's going to write on their CV, you know, pretty lazy, not committed to teamwork. Yeah, don't want to earn a lot of cash. Yeah, everybody, yeah, it's the same. When you're employing someone, you're not going to tell people we treat our staff like crap. <laughs> yeah, we're not committed to yeah, sharing, sharing the success of the company with the, with, you know, with the team who's helped us deliver it. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you take that little bit of a chance and it's only three months later that you say, if I turned the clock back, would I still hire Frank? And Frank's saying, if I turned the clock back, would I still take this job with, with this company that I've just joined? So, yeah, I think, you know, you know, one of the other amazing guys that I hired, also no degree, probably one of the best people that I've ever hired was a guy, Ricky Friedlander. And Ricky, I was, we had a, a startup, and this was post-comp tech, which was, um, 
in the fast food industry uh, for quick service restaurants. And uh, yeah, I always say I can do absolutely, you know, sports-wise, I can do absolutely anything badly. <laughs> Except golf, I can't even do that badly. But I, so I played golf. My son, my eldest son said, Dad, would you mind playing in a father-son um, yeah, father golf day? You know, it's me and you versus um, his mate Keith and Keith's dad, Ivan. I said, hmm. But my son, yeah, my son, I've got to have a crack. Anyway, we go to the golf course and we won. Oh, very and, good. Uh, so I think we've got $50 and, uh, and this, the other father, this guy Ivan said, I'm sorry I can't stay for a drink because I'm taking my eldest son, Ricky, to get a car. I said, gee, that's nice. What car is he getting? He said, he's getting a Mazda MX-5. I said, gee, you're nice, Dad. He said, no, no, it's not, it's not him. He said, uh, it's not my, my man. He's got his own business and he's buying it. I said, oh, what does he do? He said, he develops websites. And I said, gee, I said, you're pretty smart for a dentist. I've, I said, uh, it's a lost leader. I said, you pay me $50, you lose the golf game, give me 50 bucks because I need a website in Macromatics. I said, tell Ricky to call me. <laughs> Ricky called me, did our website. He was probably 21 at the time. And uh, he was studying. And uh, he did our website and I was blown away. I mean, you know what it's like when you're building a company. Nobody's got time for, mm. you know, for this little website that's sort of a necessary evil. And Ricky, his customer service was, I couldn't believe, like way ahead of his years. And uh, he did an exceptional job. And one day I said to Ricky, it's Ricky's dad, I said, I've got to tell you, Ricky was exceptional. I said, if he didn't have his own business, I'd offer him a job tomorrow. You know, just based on his attitude, the mm. way he conducted himself through that whole process. And um, his dad said, you should chat to him. I chatted to Ricky. He quit uni and his own business, came to... By, by the way, our team did not want to give him a job. Why? Okay. They said, Ricky doesn't have the skills. Ricky, yeah, we're a .NET company. Ricky's doesn't only .NET. I think Ricky was probably the first person that I ever asked. I said, Rick, what did you get for your HSC? And he said, 98.7. And I said to the guys, trust me on this one, if, if Ricky got 98.7, the skills he doesn't have, he will learn. He has an exceptional attitude. They took my advice, hired Ricky. We won KFC, which was the biggest project we ever mm. won, put Ricky on it. It was the most exceptional rollout for, you know, that I've ever been involved with, or one of the most, uh, certainly at Macromatics at the time. And, uh, and of course, the guys I worked with said, Dave, you're a genius. <laughs> I wasn't a genius. Ricky was. Um, and yeah, Ricky quit uni, doesn't have a degree. Yeah, all of the guys that I mentioned earlier would be in the top 10 people that I've ever, ever hired. And uh, none of them had a tertiary qualification behind their names. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> I can't remember what <laughs> no, that's all right. I'm just thinking about <laughs> when I can get back to the fish. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Um, no, no, I think you, I think you did. But uh, let me, let me. Actually, yeah. I just yes, thought of something. Tell me. So, I don't know if you like my shirt. But I love the shirt. <laughs> I think I'm going to change it. It's, this is called the fish named Fred. Ah, uh, yes. And I reckon I'm going to change it to a fish named Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. In, in honor of your meal. <laughs> Very good. Well, hopefully it doesn't disappoint when it's cold later. <laughs> so, Dave, I would love to understand and get a sense from you that feeling or that moment you had when you had to go from, I'm sure, working a full-time job and make that decision and the leap 
to start what at the time would have been a small business. Take me back. I didn't start a small business. I just left and uh, it was terrible. <laughs> okay, because I literally went you know, from yeah, working at a million miles an hour to nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was pretty depressing, you know, because, you know, when you're working in a company with 1,400 people at the time, and wow. uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, you were busy, yeah, I don't want to say 24 seven, but yeah, from seven until seven until seven. And, uh, and then later, you know, you'd be out with customers or with staff for dinners and, um, and then, your phone doesn't ring, there's no emails to attend to, you know, like you think, Jesus is going to be awesome. And, uh, yeah, after yeah, a couple of months, it becomes debilitating, having no purpose. And uh, about 12 months after selling the company, there was a guy that I'd invested a very small amount, it was a speech recognition company. Um, yeah, believe it or not, it was very similar to what Siri does today in 2001. And uh, there were two co-founders who ended up having a huge fight. And the one co-founder asked if I'd come and help him, which I did. And uh, I sort of became the executive chairman. I'd go in there a couple of days a week and, um, and uh, helped, helped him. Yeah, he was the CEO. Uh, but I sat up here, but I felt I can actually make a difference. Even though I'm not the guy making, you know, the... Yeah, yeah, as I said earlier, if the shit hits a fan, you know, customers would call me. Or um, when Dave Colvin wanted to resign, he came to tell me. And uh, yeah, so six months after helping Lance at Holly and we sort of turned the business around, Lance said to me, Dave, I can't thank you enough for helping me. And I looked at him and I said, Lance, I can't thank you enough for helping me. Because it really helped define the rest of the, you know, the career to where I am today, where I realized that I could still sit up here without being the day-to-day -day person and still actually make a difference to a company. So, yeah, as an example at Holly, we, what saved the company was we won the Telstra business. We, mm -hmm. needed, we needed to raise a half a million dollars to keep going. I went to all the shareholders, of which I was a minuscule one, and said, I need $500,000 to get us to the Telstra deal. If we win it, we've got a business. If we lose it, we're going to go out of business. And uh, fortunately, all the larger shareholders said, we're going, to, we're going to back Dave. The guy at Telstra had been a long-term customer of, of ours at Comtech, which I mentioned that, a guy, Graham Munro. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I always say every time, every time I've succeeded in my life, it's because someone's put their balls on the line and said the easy decision is to go with, you know, is to go with um, Genesis or with Nortel. Yeah, they establish companies, they sit in the Gartner mat. The right decision is to go with Holly. You know, that happened to me when I became the Novell distributor in 1989. There were 27 companies that applied for the distribution agreement. The easy decision was to go with one of these big public companies. The country manager of Novell at the time, guy Peter Stanford, said, that's the easy decision. I'm going to put my balls on the line and give this guy. He's got this tiny little, tiny little office in, in the city in Erskine Street with three people in the company. I'm going to give, I'm going to give him a go. And uh, yeah, so I think 
you know, I don't think I won the business, but I think I was part of a team that helped to win the business at Telstra. Yeah, you know, I just showed up, introduced the team, and then we had, you know, then we had the tech team and Lance as the CEO present the product and, and the, you know, how we would solve the problem that Telstra needed to be solved at the time. And uh, it was a company-changing opportunity. You know, after that, we won Vodafone, won Optus, and uh, went on to win a couple of deals in the, in the US as well, and eventually got acquired by one of the US um, customers, uh, West Interactive. So, yeah, I think that's really what I do today. Um, it's not being operational. Mm. It's, uh, it's very, very different to be in an operational role. You know, it's easy, yeah, when times have got challenging over the last couple of years, yeah, it's easy to tell a CEO to, yeah, you need to cut your costs by 50% or 30%, whatever. Easy to do it when you're sitting here and saying, Frank, this is what you need to do. You, the poor, you, the poor guy, has got to go and make, yeah, either make or not make the, the tough calls that need to be made. So yeah, that's, um, that's what I do today and uh, that's what defined my career. But I can tell you that doing nothing, yeah, in spite of having financial security was debilitating. Mm. And, and, and when I met with you, I think it was on our first lunch, you told me that someone instrumental during that period told you that there was just three things. You made it really simple. You said there was three things in life to create happiness and contentment. Yeah, that's true. It what was um, my wife's uncle, Uncle Charlie, fantastic man. And one day I told him what I'm telling you. I just said, I just I feel I have no purpose. And, it just, and he said to me, David, if you want to be happy in life, you need someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. And, and I really believe yeah, to this day that if you can get those three things right, you'll be a happy person. Love that. And, and so you kind of touched on now that, that that then was the stepping stone to what you're doing today. Yep. And so I've asked you this question, but I'd love for you to share it. It's like, first, I guess, you know, what is the company that you're part of and what is it you do? And then beyond that, it's like, why does that bring you so much passion and purpose? So, so today um, I'm a co-founder in a venture capital fund. It's called OIFVC. Someone asked me the other day, what does OIF stand for? And uh, I said, good returns. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, um, so really what we do is we provide capital for early stage uh, startups, companies that, you know, where there's, you know, we back what we think are hopefully exceptional founders who are solving a problem that customers are going to buy and pay for. And um, yeah, if we summarize it, yeah, Mark, Co-founder Jerry Stessel said he calls it the five T's. Yeah, he says we, we first and foremost we back the team. Mm. Second of all, we want to know what is the TAM? How big is this opportunity that the founder's working on? Is it big enough for us to deploy our capital? Yeah. Third of all, what traction has the founder had? You know, are there customers that we can call and say, how come you chose to work with this company? What's the product like? What other solutions did you consider before you chose this founder's product? Will you be renewing your contract? What have they been like to work with when, you know, when they implemented or helped you, you know, or when you rolled out the, the, the solution? Fourth is timing. Yeah, we, yeah, 
if you don't get the timing right, sometimes you can be too early, which unfortunately was the case with Holly. We, are, we were probably 15 years ahead of our time right. with, with speech recognition. Yeah, speech recognition today is unbelievably pervasive. Mm. Everybody uses Siri or Alexa. In our day, it was, it was, it was not, yeah, it was not pervasive, and uh, yeah, it never became the market that Lance, the founder, yeah, thought it would be in those early days. Yeah, sometimes you can be too late. Yeah, Nick Molnar, who's arguably, in my opinion, if you look at the success of Afterpay, and the importantly the execution from the start to the exit, yeah, I'd say Nick and Anthony are arguably. Yeah, the two best founders that Australia's produced in the last couple of years, yeah, including yeah, Canva and, and Atlassian and uh, Richard White at, after, at um, WiseTech. But if Nick, as good a founder as he is, um, came and said, Dave, I'm thinking about setting up a buy now, pay later solution, probably missed the boat. Not probably, definitely missed the boat. And that's uh, so timing's critical. And uh, yeah, I think uh, the last T will come to me. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for that. I was like, this is going to be very impressive <laughs> if we remember all five yeah. of these T's. It'll come. Um, that's awesome. What and happens I, when you get to 63? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it happens to me now, so I've, I've got no hope. Um, okay. And, and, and why does that bring you... Ah, I've got it. See? It's uh, <laughs> the terms. It's, terms. Is, are the terms fair for the founder and are they fair for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, we've been entrusted with other people's money who have invested in our business, and uh, and we've got to make sure we, yeah, if OIF does deliver great returns, that we have to invest at the right price. But never ever, yeah, like I just read in on LinkedIn only on the weekend, where someone said you've got to be careful that the VC doesn't use their dominance or whatever. Like in my opinion, it should never be a relationship that because the VC's got the money, they have the power. The VC can only re- deliver amazing returns for, for their investors if you back great founders at fair returns. And to mm. me, that's how any relationship has got to be. It's got to be fair for the founder. It's got to be fair for the investor, in our case, OIF. And uh, so those are the five, the five T's. Team, TAM, traction, timing, and terms. Well done, Dave. <laughs> well done. Impressive. So, so let's, let's dive into that, right? So like... Taking those things into consideration, what do you think some, give me two examples of what is most important in the success to date with OIF that you think has delivered, you know, and found you the great right businesses? I, I think, first of all, it's, I think we've backed really good founders, mm-hmm. founders that we, you know, I always say that we, we love our founders and I think our founders love us. I think if you were pitching to me today, and uh, I, I really wanted to invest in your business. I'd say, Frank, go to our website. There's yeah, 35 companies on that website. You can speak to any of the founders. Because I think our founders know that we're more than just a check. We really bust our butt mm. to add value to our founders, to help them, yeah, as I said right at the outset, that the reason you take the risk of starting your own company is to eventually have that exit and, and achieve financial security. And, uh, and uh, we really want to help, in addition to the capital, help our founders realize their dreams of saying, if I hadn't taken that check from OIF, maybe I would not have achieved the outcome that I did. 
I think the other thing that we think, we don't care, you know, everybody says, including you and I, <laughs> when, uh, when we met today, you know, any new unicorns. And of course, it would be amazing to have unicorns, but unicorns don't necessarily mean that you've had a great outcome. If you've invested at the wrong price, you may not mm. get a five X return. We've had some unbelievable returns, yet we haven't had one unicorn in, in, in those outcomes. One of them, a company called EFT Sure, you know, got sold for $100 million. I think we put in four and got back $27 million. Wow. And what, yeah. what, what time period? Uh, it was probably about a four or five year time wow. period. You know, the founder, the nice. founder walked away with $25 million and you know, that's, a life -changing, mm. that's a life changing amount of money. That founder never has to worry about a mortgage you know, sending their kids to private school if that's what they want to, if they want to go on a trip. If we go overseas, what do we have to compromise on? So, yeah, I think that, yeah, we've had one with Insta Cluster in Canberra was sold for $700 million. Whoa. Yeah, we put in $3.5 million and got back 70 at return, two times our fund. So still no unicorns, <laughs> but, yeah, really great. That's very returns. close. <laughs> yeah, so, so I think, yeah, it goes back to what are the terms and, and what is the TAM? And we don't care if a company can only sell for $100 million mm. if we own 20% of the company and uh, yeah, we've put in $4 million or $5 million and ended up getting you know, half our fund back or whatever it happens to mm. be. You can still do unbelievably well. So yeah, that's, um, we, we Very don't good. have... That's, uh, and I guess it's all relative, right? So exactly to your point. So l let me help um, you know, the listeners out there who might be thinking, okay, I want to impress someone like David. I want to go out there. I want to pitch my business. And you talk about the importance of looking for that right founder, you know, that, the sparkle in them. What is it you're looking for? So the stage that we invest at is, you know, often people say, like, how much due diligence we do. Because we're early stage and there's, Earlier, earlier stage than mm. what we do. There's, you know, there's, there's the PowerPoint uh, or canvas stage yep. where someone comes and uh, yeah, presents their, their idea. Yeah, we're not the right guys for that. Mm -hmm. we, we are, you know, where there's, what traction do you have? So is there a customer that, you know, that's the due diligence we do. So yeah, our thematic, we don't have a thematic that we just do FinTech or EdTech or AgTech. We basically, our thematic is, is is a founder so and that's why if you look at our portfolio we we literally cover everything from cyber security to to two guys digitally transforming the funeral industry at the other extreme and then everything in between so we've mm. got ed tech we've got fintech we've got market marketing tech yeah we've got um yeah we cover a lot of different sectors so the key to us so we're not domain expertise mm -hmm. uh, experts in any particular area um, so, so what you're looking at in the early stage, in addition to those few customers that are paying revenue, is, as I said, does that founder have that X factor to be able to, to win some of those anchor customers, to go and convince a Telstra that, yes, the easy decision is to go with, you know, is to go with Nortel or Alcatel, but convince, and as I say, you need a little bit of luck as well. You need the customer to say, yeah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to risk my job by going with the startup. But it happened. You know, it happened at Macromatics, which was the 
quick service, um, you know, quick service uh, software that we had at Macromatics, the easy decision was the CTO could have gone with Micros. Micros was a $5 billion company, US company. It was Yum Brands, which is the owner of KFC. Mm. It was their sort of recommended product to their subsidiaries. The easy decision for Patrick Tay would have been, we'll go with, you know, that's, yeah, if, if it stuffs up, I can't get fired because mm, I, I just mm. followed the corporate line. Yeah, Patrick said, I'm going to go with Macromatics and, uh, and we never let him or Graham Munro Telstra down with Holly. Or, so it's, it's saying, do you think that founder has the X factor to win those first few anchor customers? Importantly, do you think that founder is going to have the ability to, to attract unbelievably good people to join this company? because you can't do that all on your own. Mm. You know, I think you were involved with your brothers. You all had different roles in the company. And uh, you know, it's the same in, in any company. You, know, you, need, you need an awesome team to, to, uh, you know, to be able to execute on your business plan. So that's pretty much what we're looking at saying. Yeah. And also, do you think that founders willing to not only hire the right people, but also empower those people to say, yeah, which I was always very grateful when I hired someone who was, yeah, yeah, when I hired our first, you know, I'm not a technical person, even though I've been in the tech industry all my life, but, you know, when I hired our first two tech guys, I let them run the business. You know, I said to them, or they're part of the business, I, you know, I said to them, all is what I care about is if a customer calls for tech support, mm -hmm. I want them to get accurate information a prompt response and we never keep them in the dark. Mm. That was the only brief they had from me. How they delivered on that was why I hired them. Mm. You know, what systems should we be using? How many people do we, do we need in the team? What training do the guys need to be able to deliver on those, yeah, on those, uh, yeah, those three fundamental things that we need to deliver on? And uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's, I think, critical for any founder that you can, hire the right people, and then empower people to run their part of the business. Awesome. So if I boil that down, what it sounds like to me, Dave, is you were focused on the outcomes. So when you bring people in, it's like, here's the outcomes, or you know, exactly. let's call it potentially the guardrails. I, I, yep. These are the measures of success, but how you get that is going to be your individuality and what you're doing is creating autonomy in them, and therefore they, to your point, feel empowered to make the decision and also feel that reward and recognition because when they get there, they know it was them. So, you have to have some core values no matter mm. where mm. you work in the company. So, but which I should have probably said at the outset. So, from our perspective, our core values at Comtech and every company I've been involved with are customer and staff satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So, we absolutely obsessed about delivering exceptional customer service, and we absolutely obsessed about you, know, you can only deliver exceptional customer service if you've got a highly energized team of people mm. who work in your organisation. Mm. And, uh, and by the way, I can now say that doesn't matter if you're in the tech industry or if you're in the finance industry, which, which I guess is what I'm in today, where you, yeah, we, we provide capital to, you know, to fuel the growth of startups. And um, I, uh, so it didn't matter if you were running the warehouse, running the tech, the tech team, ru you know, r running our sales team, Everybody was important at company, and when, if we did a staff satisfaction survey, didn't matter if you were dealing with our Melbourne office or our Perth office or our Brisbane office, that the constant theme had to be 
Our staff love working in this company and our customers love doing business with us. And you know, that was unwavering, but then how our branch manager ran, the, you know, you had Steve Nola who ran the Melbourne office and Alan Bradshaw who ran the Perth office, I would never say to, to Alan, you have to run your office like Steve, or to Steve, mm. you need to run your office. Yeah, of course the guys could learn what's working, what hasn't worked, or whatever. But each person's got to be unique and have their own individual, uh, yeah, their own individual style. But those core values were, were not yeah, uncompromisable. And, um, and uh, yeah, that's how we grew the company to 1,400 people with, yeah, I don't want to ever tell you that 100% of people were happy. I always say when we had five people in the company, 20% were wrong. When I had 100 people, 20% were wrong. When we had 1,000, 20% were wrong. And probably we didn't, yeah, if I look at my own career, I always say, I used to say, fair first, tough second. Mm. And if I, had, if I had a weakness, it was, I was fair way too long. Mm. Sometimes when you know someone wasn't right, I would take too long um, to make the tough decisions of saying, Frank, it's time for me and you to have a hard chat. We're probably not adding value to you and you're not adding value to us and it's time for, you know, time for you to move on. Those are the hardest decisions. One last thing I want to drill down is you mentioned the X factor. And I guess one of the conscious things for me is around like that takeaway for someone to go like, okay, I can employ that. And so let me, I guess, play it back to you what I think I heard and then you tell me if I'm missing any yep. elements. When I hear, I guess, X factor from a founder's point of view and what you might be looking for, it will be around passion. So pa yep. do they have passion in their product and therefore is that passion infectious yep. and contagious, yep. whether it be the most charismatic person ever or they're a super nerd and <laughs> super smart, they might be passionate just on their product and understand it deeply. Yep. Next would be, you know, if they have a level of charisma, uh, very high, you know, that's a, a, a great indicator because if they can, you know, they can um, encourage and infect you with the excitement on the products, well then therefore they can do it to a customer as well. And then the last element I'm imagining would be around, you know, their work ethic and their, their, their grit. You know, something I heard recently was someone's viewers, the higher probability in success for them is they feel, the, they feel that if people can take a no long enough, that their likelihood of success is far greater. Yep. And so I think about those three things. <clears throat> is there anything I'm missing when it comes to that X factor? I think you probably summarized it as well as you cook the fish. <laughs> but, but, no, I think that's a pretty good because that, yeah, that grit and determination is, is critical because yeah, it's never easy. Yeah, even when you're growing quickly, it's never easy because yeah, can you hire the same quality people that you had when you were 10 people? Mm. Yeah, when you get to 50 people, are, are customers still saying, the level of service and support is as good today, if not better. You know, if you're attracting and retaining really good people in your organization, your big doesn't mean better, but it shouldn't be worse either. Mm -hmm. If the quality of the people that you bring into your organization of a high quality. Yeah. So yeah, as you grow, you, you know, there's different challenges. You know, when you're really small, there's a challenge of convincing, yeah, should I join the startup? There's only three people. Yeah, customers saying, is it worth taking the risk and committing our entire business to this three or four person startup? You know, then you get bigger. You know, when you were a smaller company, we seem to be getting more attention and more service from you. So, so there's always challenges and, uh, and you need a founder exactly, you know, as you say. It's, uh, there's some things that are in your control and there's some things that happen outside of your control. You know, it's, uh, you know, we had a massive challenge in our business yeah, where... Um, we had three 
three big vendors at the time, Novell, Synoptics and Cisco. Cisco's the only one that's still around and relevant today, but it was like the dream team. One day I get a, um, uh, an email from our supplier at Synoptics saying, great news, we've just merged with Wellfleet. Wellfleet was Cisco's biggest competitor and I felt the blood drain from my system because I didn't want them to merge. I didn't want anything to change. Mm. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, outside of our control, something we had absolutely no control of was going to have a massive impact on our business. And you somehow have to work out how do we deal, how do we deal with that? Mm. Interesting. I like it. Let me ask you one more question on business before we, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it into a question around high performance because I love that you recently did a half Ironman. My last question on business is, there's a young person listening to it today, 21, 22, 23, and they're about to make that decision to finish work and start a business. What do you think is the most important advice that you could give them? Probably the best advice I could say is that so I'm going to give my book a plug because I have written a it's book. It's a good book. I've read it. <laughs> uh, it's called The Dumbest Guy at the Table. And, uh, and uh, in that book, I say, I have three sons. And uh, my dad gave me advice saying, rather earn 50 cents for yourself than a dollar from somebody else. And I say, that's the exact opposite advice that I give my own kids. I say, why the hell would you want to have all the aggravation of... of running your own business and you're literally earning half as much as you would working at a, a great company like yeah, a Canva or Wise Tech or a Macquarie Bank or whatever where you're getting a good salary, stock options. Yeah, you, today, lots of people allow you to share in the success of the company. However, if any of my, my boys came and said, Dad, I want to have a go, I would back them to the hilt. But I would say, if after a reasonable period of time, you're not earning at least as much as you would on a job. And two, you're not building an asset that you can sell one day. Don't waste your time. Because I've seen too many founders just keep going and going mm. and going just because they don't want to say, I failed. And you know, I will say, if I look at you know, the first founder that I backed, the first company that I backed outside of Comtech was Holly. I think Lance made a mistake of going on too long. Uh, you know, Lance was one of the best, honestly one of the best people that I've worked with in terms of attitude, ability. You know, as a salesperson, you know, when I say we, you know, Lance was unbelievably instrumental in winning the Telstra business. Mm -hmm. But I think he went on way too long. And uh, you know, if Lance had worked at a Cisco, would have been, you know, would have been earning millions of dollars in salaries and stock options, and I'm going back 20 years, and mm. would have set himself up for life by, but just kept going and kept going. And I think, you know, we sold out, Lance kept going, and I think after about 10 years of earning, yeah, ridiculously low, you know, like a, a ridiculously low salary, um, ended up walking away with about $400,000. And I think, you know, cost him in his career, you know, yeah, it was, I think, pretty hard for him to recover mm. after that. So I would just say, just set yourself realistic goals um, and make sure that you know, there's always momentum. Like what's changed today when you look at, you know, when you look at your own business? You know, what's changed this year to what we were doing last year? Mm. Yeah, so if I go and take Macromatics, you know, we invested in that company, the founder had 
yeah, New Zealand natural ice cream and a porters with two customers. A year later, we had won about six other customers, mm -hmm. um, Nando's, Collins Food Group. A year later, which was a turning point, I always say this company changing mm -hmm. deals, we won KFC. KFC took our product from here. They said, we love what you're doing, but you mm -hmm. need to do this, 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 and this. And, you know, we then won, the next year, we won Starbucks China. Mm. You know, the, wow. next, the next year, you know, we, we hired an amazing CEO in the US. So every year, you could feel positive mm. momentum that you could feel. And I pretty much self-funded um, with capital, whereas wow. my business partners put in the sweat equity. Um, and, uh, but every year, I said, is it worth putting more of my own capital into this business? And every year I'd look at and saying, what's changed? What's, what is the momentum in this business that was different today to what, what happened last year? And, and then, you know, then you, you know, everything is, you can't be 100% certain on anything mm. uh, in life. But um, I always felt that you know, if we can win a KFC and then a Starbucks in China, eventually we won McDonald's across Australia and Asia Pacific. Wow. And it was, yeah, it, it was, you know, we sold the company probably too early, but it was a, a great outcome. You know, the founder was a guy, Saul Kaplan, one of the most exceptional people I've worked with. And Saul, um, yeah, I said to Saul when we invest, I said, you will not have a mortgage by the time we finish. <laughs> and I can proudly say, when you say, what makes me happy? I'll never forget, Saul called me, he said, Dave, I'm at CBA, you're the first person that I'm calling, I have no mortgage. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that made me proud that I kept my word um, that, that um, yeah, we delivered what we committed to deliver to, to Saul. Amazing, I love that. I have one last question for you, Dave. It's something that has really inspired me with our recent conversations, and it's around your half Ironman. So my question is, I guess for everybody in the audience, what is a half Ironman, and what drove you to do it? <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good question. <laughs> so you did mention high performance, and I'll say, High determination yeah. for me is probably a better, <laughs> a better, um, <laughs> a better description. So, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, so, it's quite a long story, but I uh, registered two years to do a half Ironman, and uh, it was actually for the first time actually got a coach. I've got a friend that I cycled with who's a very good triathlete, and he had a coach. And uh, I said, Roscoe, give me the name of your coach. And I, I started, this was, uh, started training remotely. I mean, it's amazing what you can do. She had set my program oh, wow. and it was going really well. Uh, the training was going really well. Um, and, uh, and the goal for me was just to finish, really. Mm. That was, mm. uh, um, and uh, it got cancelled because of COVID. So the but everybody got rolled into 2022. And uh, so last year I was training on my own. I forgot about the coach, gave it a crack and tore my meniscus and, and basically sent... During training or during the during event? During training. Okay. So about six weeks before, eight weeks before I forget, I pulled out of the training and that's my, that's my half Ironman career done and dusted, done. And... Uh, about 12 weeks before the race this year, unbeknown to me, I get an email, huh. as a, a generic email saying, 
Dear David, hope the training's going well. They said, only 12 weeks to go to Western Sydney. And uh, I thought, hmm. So I, uh, I thought, I may as well, I'm registered. Hmm. I'm going to give the training a crack and see how I go. So I, uh, I did all the training on my own and actually did quite a lot of the bike training indoors, which is pretty amazing wow. what you can do indoors today, including doing the course the simulation of the course. Wow! And uh, and uh, and I can say, having done the race and the simulation, was unbelievably realistic on terms of what my time was doing it in in my in, in, at home versus what I actually did in the race. And uh, so my goal was, first of all, to get to the start line, and uh, and second of all, to complete the race. And if I really wanted to be happy do it under six hours. So I have done a few before. My best time was five hours 15. I was a lot younger uh, in those days. I think I did it when I turned 50. I decided middle age crisis. I did my first one in Port Macquarie and I did it in five hours 15. I thought 12 years later, if I can do it in under six hours, I'd be pretty, pretty happy with myself. So I did the race. Um, it's a, a 1.9 kilometer swim. And uh, I should have probably quit after the swim because I came out in my age group, came out first in the water. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then it went downhill from there. Uh, I then did, um, so I expected to do about 35 minutes on the swim. I did 32 minutes. The bike, I thought if I have a good ride, it'll be two hours 48. It's a 90 kilometer bike ride. Um, it's two hours, I thought I could do 248 to 252. I did just under 252. And the run, I thought if I could do somewhere between two hours six, which would be six minutes a K to two hours 20, is, was my target. And then you need a little bit of time. If anyone's done a tri uh, triathlon, you know it's called transition, mm. where you're transitioning from the swim mm. to you know, put your helmet on, get mm. on your, you know, your, your cycling shoes and get out. To, yeah, so that's about five, yeah, five or six minutes. So my, my goal was, um, probably never, you, you, hope, you, you wish, probably wish you never asked me this question. But, <laughs> this is good. But, but my goal was, I wanted to have three and a half hours for the bike, the swim, and the transition mm. to give myself two and a half hours to get the run. And I was absolutely on track. And the run, which is my weak, uh, my, my weak leg, uh, the, the kilometers just seemed to be ticking by. I couldn't believe how, you know, how well I was going until about 14 k's because it's a 21-kilometer run. So it's a 1.9-kilometer swim, 90-kilometer bike ride, and then a half marathon, 21 k's. At about 14 k's, my back just literally spasmed. Mm -hmm. I could barely, I, well, I couldn't stand up straight. And I think the last seven k's, I think anyone who saw me would have thought that the hunchback from Notre Dame <laughs> was, 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 doing, was doing the race. And I ended up doing the half in two hours 12. So I finished in five hours 43. So I was unbelievably happy. Mm. But just to put it in perspective, in my age group, which is 60 to 64, mm. um, the winner of my age group did in four hours 45. Um, the, the, he did the bike leg in, um, in uh, two hours 20, which is averaging 38 kilometers an hour for 90 kilometers. Mm. 
and then did the, the run under five minute Ks, I think four, four minutes 55. Amazing. So, yeah, to me, as I say, for me, it was literally what any founder needs is a lot of grit and yeah. determination. That's getting, yeah, it's getting up in the morning and getting the training done. Uh, sometimes, yeah, it can be, can be boring. You know, you get in the, get in the swimming pool or out in the ocean and you, you're swimming for, for an hour and, uh, and, uh, yeah, but I, I, I really, I think, you know, the, the lesson that I think it is, is that if you set yourself a realistic goal mm. and you really put your mind to it and, uh, and know what you need to do to get to the end outcome, if I can do a half Ironman, anything is possible. It's amazing. That is real. I can't express to you how, how impressed and how many people I've been talking about, about it because it's incredible. Dave, the Eat With Purpose cookbook for me is around cooking, high performance and business. Um, I'm incredibly thankful to have you on the, the show today because you are a very clear version of success when it comes to business. Talking about a half Iron Man at 63 years old, incredibly, <laughs> you know, I know not your words, but in my words, high performance there is absolutely. And we've got to share a dish today, so food. So that's the right intersection. Dave, I thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Frank. And, and the, honestly, the, the fish was I'll say world class, really. <laughs> Love that.